2: I think that's the sort of fun thing about getting to do extended critical analysis, where part of it is what you would do for a review, for instance. But then the rest of it is, this is what the director said. This is what they actually did. This is what happened on set. And it all really coheres into a single picture, if you were lucky enough.
3: <laughs> Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, it is lovely to see you again, but... I first need to check something. The voice at the top of the show sure sounded like our working co-host, Karen Han.
4: Your ears do not deceive you, June. It was, in fact, Working Zone Karen Han.
3: And what was the occasion for turning the tables and having a host be a guest?
4: Well, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, and I know you have June, and so have you at home listener, then you've heard about the upcoming release of Karen's first book, Bong Joon-ho, Dissident Cinema. And well, guess what? It's no longer upcoming. It's out now. It's in stores. And so we finally get to do our working interview with her.
3: Well, I am very excited to hear this interview, but I believe that you have an extra segment for Slate Plus members. What will they hear?
4: Yes, our Slate Plus listeners will get a little extra discussion of what Karen learned about Bong Joon-ho that surprised her from writing the book. Because, you know, she knows so much about him. You know, it's kind of like, well, well, what did you discover? And uh, I did ask her if there were any juicy tidbits or stories. (laughs) And she does, in fact, have one that she tells.
3: Oh, that's amazing. If you're a member of Slate Plus, you'll hear that at the end of the episode. And if you aren't, it's really easy to join Slate Plus members get to hear extra segments like the one we just described. You'll get bonus episodes of shows like Big Mood, Little Mood and Apple's podcast of the year, Slow Burn. And of course, you'll never hit a paywall on Slate.com. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Karen Han.
4: Karen Han, welcome to Working.
2: Thank you so much. It's so exciting to be here as the guest.
4: I know. It's great. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. (laughs) You know, normally when you and I are talking into microphones, we're talking about someone else's work, but this time we get to talk about and celebrate your first book, Bong Joon-ho, Dissident Cinema, which is now in bookstores everywhere. But before we do that, I want to just back up a little bit because... I'm teaching like college sophomores and juniors right now. And so I get a lot of questions about careers and things like that. And so I've become very interested in talking to our guests about it. So can you tell us a little bit about like the early part of your journey of deciding that you wanted to do, I guess at, at first it was freelance writing about film and popular culture and kind of, you know, what led you to want to do that and and, and how you got started in it?
2: I mean, it all really started with me knowing like what I was passionate about and trying to find what was at least adjacent or kind of touching upon that. Like I've always been a really big movies and TV and culture in general person. And I went to college for art history because that was like about as adjacent as I could get with my parents being like, you can't, <laughs> like, you cannot go to film school. They didn't say that explicitly. I'm sure my mom will listen to this podcast. So I don't mean this negatively because I really did love my art history degree. But when I graduated from college, the question was like, okay, now what can I do with this in the world that I'm interested in? And the first few jobs that I had out of college were museum jobs, like because that is kind of the natural track for an art history major. But while I was in those jobs, I was like, oh, this is not really where I want to be. Partially because I, I hadn't really realized up to that point, like, how much of the art world is revolves around, like, money, which is not, <laughs> like, super optimistic, I guess, as far as, like, culture goes. And also the fact that there was not that much lateral or vertical movement in the particular positions that I had been able to get in museums at that point. So I ended up just looking for arts related jobs. I got a job in the development department at Play Arts Horizons. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that basically means I got a job helping fundraise for the company. And while I was there, I was like, obviously, spreadsheets aren't what I want to do either. Like I do want to do something that's more related to the arts. So while I was there, I would go to my job. And then after I got off of work, I would just write stuff for my own blog, basically, I just write down like film thoughts, And after a while, I started using those to pitch to small publications. And then I would use the clips that I got from those publications to pitch to larger publications and so on and so forth. And that was my intro, I guess, into this path.
4: Oh, interesting. Interesting. You know... You've been a freelancer, you had a staff job at Polygon, another one at, at a website called Slate.com that our <laughs> listeners may be familiar with. You know, in all of that, you've done a lot of stuff. You've done, you know, specific film reviews, you've done larger trend pieces, you've done interviews, you, you've done, you know, also humor writing, you know, even. Um, is there a particular kind of subgenre of that that you feel like is your wheelhouse or that you really enjoy to, doing the most?
2: I mean, I I, I don't want to like brag or sound like I'm too brag, to my own horn, but do I do think I'm pretty good across the board. Yeah, Stuff that yeah. I especially enjoy though, like I really do like doing reviews, but I think that's an opportunity that not a lot of people get because like the staff writers will usually get those opportunities. And even though I was on staff, I was like, I would say like the lowest rung. So not everything would fall into my lap that way. And I also do really do like doing interviews. And I do think that I'm good at them and I do good research before I go into them. So I'm not asking the same questions that have always been asked. Um, That said, like, I didn't really get to do that much long form, like really long form writing, like anything past a thousand words, I would say in my entire career, largely because, I don't know, the media landscape makes it very, very hard for young writers to do anything of that length or something that requires that much time.
4: Right, because... You know, people don't realize this, but, you know, if you're sort of the junior staff writer, a lot of the stuff you're writing is like the ending of the terror season one explained or, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's sometimes less letting you stretch those other muscles.
2: It can be really frustrating, honestly, because the reason that you were hired at that low kind of low position on the totem pole, so to speak, is because like the higher writers don't want to do that stuff. They don't want to spend their time <laughs> doing it. But the problem that I often encountered, like, I mean, I also don't want to rag on that necessarily because there's some stuff that is really fun to do in that kind of short form way. But there is a lot of grind, like just writing up, this trailer dropped, here it is, or something like that, where there's no real substance in it. And one thing that I found really frustrating and that I commiserate a lot with with my peers is that... A lot of the times the people who are managing you will be like, hey, why don't you do like a really big profile, like a really long form piece? And it's like, I want to do that, but I don't have the time and I don't have the resources provided to me by this company, by this site in order to do that. Mm -hmm. Like I recall at one of the previous companies I worked at, they were like, oh, look at these writers, for example. Like, look at the great work they do. And if you clicked through to their byline on the site, it was like one piece every six months. And it's like, that's why they can do that. They can spend all that time researching and writing and making sure that they have all this substance. But if you're writing a thousand words a day, you absolutely don't really have the bandwidth to do that.
4: Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, the last two big assignments I had, uh, one of which I just filed this week, you know, I booked those like three months before they were due because I knew mm-hmm. they would involve a lot of research, you know, and I was just like, and then I just slowly worked on them in the background so I could, you know, read the biography of the writer I was writing about and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Like, yeah. time is its own limited resource.
2: Very much so.
4: So, you know, it's fascinating then that you would make the leap from that to writing a whole book <laughs> on a on. A filmmaker that you and I both love. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to talk to you about this. So, you know, for people who haven't seen the book yet, which is now in stores, and you should all go get it. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's it's sensational. Um, (laughs) Can you tell our listeners about Bong Joon-ho Dissident Cinema?
2: Yeah. Um, so if any of our listeners are, uh, for those listeners who are cinephiles, rather, you may already be familiar with this series of monographs that Abrams and Little White Lies work on together. Um, for instance, Adam Naiman and Hannah Strong have written for them. They have big coffee table books on like the Cohen brothers, David Fincher and Sofia Coppola, uh, on and on. And my book is kind of the latest in that series. And specifically talks about the works of the Korean director Bong Joon-ho. So the way that these books are structured is you have a chapter basically devoted to each of the director's movies, like doing critical analysis. Um, And then you will also have uh, some interviews with their closest collaborators. So the way that my book is structured is I have a lovely forward by the filmmaker David Lowry. Thank you so much, David. An intro by me. Uh, seven chapters, one for each of Fong's movies, then a chapter on uh, his short film and music video work, and then a section with six interviews and then an outro. So it's a lot of stuff in there. And I think, hopefully, if you were at all interested in his films, something in there for you.
4: Yeah, totally. And how could you not be interested in his films? <laughs> I mean... Come on. Um, so how did it come about? How did you, you know, I know that you're very public about your enthusiasm for director bong, but like, did they approach you? Did you pitch them? Did someone matchmake between the two of you?
2: So the kind of genesis of it, I guess, was when Parasite came out, I was a very vocal proponent of it online. And I, I, I mean, I came up with the hashtag bong to sort of support it. And it went really, really like shockingly viral.
4: I credit you for its win of Best Picture. I just want you to know that. I, there's, I think like, I don't think like you're 100% responsible, but I think you're more responsible than anyone not employed by that movie.
2: Oh, well, thank you, Isaac. But uh, because like that was so prominent and I did get like some media appearances out of it, which was really, really wild. Uh, but because of that and because I was already sort of friendly with the folks at Little White Lies or like we were Twitter mutuals already to put it very, very serious, like coldly but the very wonderful editor David Jenkins reached out to me to see if I would be at all interested in doing this and I just looked through my emails and I first was contacted I think in May of 2020 so that was when we first started talking about the book Um, and he was basically saying like we would really love to do a bong book next and we thought of you to do it like again because you have talked so much about his work and are a culture writer. So that was the start of it. I was very, very lucky that they reached out to me.
4: So for our listeners who maybe aren't quite the bong enthusiast you or or I are, um, (laughs) what is it that makes his films special?
2: I mean, there's so much. I really love his movie so much. But I think part of it is I don't think any of his movies are predictable in any way. Like, there's always something there that you don't see coming. You, I don't think there's ever a time where you'll be watching the movie and you'll be like, oh, I know what's going to happen next. Like, I know how this is going to end. There's always some subversion of expectations, not just in narrative, but also in the style that he uses to show, like, what is going on, his musical choices, and even the way that he builds his stories. Like, there's... For example, like, take Memories of Murder. Like, it's a movie that's been compared to David Fincher's Zodiac a lot because they're both, like, these murder cases. But you can take it a very surface value. Like, it is a story about this murder case. But if you dig deeper into the details that he plans throughout the films and also the historical context that he's chosen to tell this story, like, granted, it's not necessarily that he chose it because, like, it is based on a real-life serial murder case in Korea. But... There's a lot of social commentary baked in there in all of his films in a way that's not moralizing, I would say, which I think is a trap that a lot of films tend to fall into, where if you're trying to set out to have a message, to say something important, then it's kind of too obvious. It's too blatant. But he is so focused on telling a good story that it all just really binds together in a really organic and really thrilling way for all of his films.
4: So you talked earlier about you know, trying to use the things you're interested in and and passionate about to like, you know, create work out of it, right? Obviously, like you have a great love of director Bong's work, (laughs) uh, but it's not like you can just be like, this guy is awesome for 300 pages with photos, right? So, so how do you go from, you know, like, how do you use your enthusiasm to kind of create lines of inquiry into his, his filmmaking and ways of thinking about it?
2: I think it's sort of jumping off of instinct to a degree. Like for example, like one of the things that's really striking about the movie Mother is this final shot that's taken like through the window of a bus. It's absolutely incredible. And when you watch that, if you even take just one step back, you're like, "How did they do this? This seems really, really hard. The sun has to be in the right place, the bus has to be in the right place, and going the the right speed for the camera to be able to catch it and then catch the light coming through." Then you naturally like st- have these things that you latch onto that you want to research further about. So that was kind of like the big way that I would blow out chapters in a way where I already know there are some things that I can talk about in terms of critical analysis that doesn't require like too much further research. Like I could say like X thing in this scene like is pointing to this scene. It's directing your attention this way. But for stuff like that, you can look at interviews done with the director and with the crew and sort of see more about the process of making it. Because I think that's the sort of fun thing about getting to do extended critical analysis, where part of it is what you would do for a review, for instance. Like, here is just my analysis of this. Here is my take on it, basically. But then the rest of it is, here is here's the facts to a certain degree because critical analysis like part of it is just your opinion and you have to be able to back it up but then there's this stuff where it's like this is what the director said this is what they actually did this is what happened on set and it all really coheres into a uh, single picture if you were lucky enough <laughs> sometimes it's not easy to do
4: right right totally i mean that's a great point that you know if you just start with what you're interested in and then just focus on it enough that you have a question And then try to answer that question. Something interesting is going to come out there.
2: It's like a treasure hunt in that way. You know vaguely what you're looking for. But as you go, there's more and more things that you find out.
4: Was there a lot of stuff that you didn't wind up using that you looked into and that you investigated, you know, of those kind of going off instinct and then eventually was like, "Ah, actually, that goes on the cutting room floor?
2: Honestly, not too much. Like, I think if there was one thing that I would change or that i would like expand in this book it would be to try to get a translator for the korean criticism or korean like Mm -hmm. interviews like korean press basically that was written about his work because i'm conversationally fluent i would say in korean but my reading and writing are pretty slow and i there i my technical vocabulary is very very lacking um, I think I covered a lot of ground that I wouldn't have with the interviews with his collaborators. But I don't know, there's still a lot of writing out there that I haven't read about him purely because of an accessibility and kind of a language barrier.
3: We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Karen Han. Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank. Members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
3: Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we answer listener questions. So please tell us your creative challenges and let us help you out. Drop us a line at working at slate.com. You can also send a voice memo to that address or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's return to Isaac's conversation with Karen Han.
4: Another component of this is, of course, the kind of like exterior contextual stuff, you know, about Korean culture or about mm-hmm. Bong Joon-ho's place within the Korean new wave, because he comes up as part of a generation of other directors. Uh, how did you figure out kind of how much contextual information you wanted to give us and, and how much you wanted to kind of exposit on that versus just kind of looking at the, the movies in isolation as movies or whatever?
2: I think the structure honestly helped a lot because this isn't a biography of Bong. So his biographical details are mostly limited to the introduction that I wrote Mm -hmm. and only really are pulled into the main chapters if they're relevant to that movie And I tried to limit it, I guess, to what was, again, what was relevant to each movie. For instance, like the stuff in Memories of Murder that's about like the student uprisings and the democratic movement in Korea, like that obviously has to go in there. Whereas like in The Host, you talk about the American influence on Korean culture and stuff like that. So it was kind of cut and dry in that sense. Like I was pretty lucky that I didn't have to parse through too much in that sense. Like I knew where things were going to go pretty much from the start. Mm.
4: And are you someone who like... You have an outline for a chapter, you start writing at the beginning, you get to the end, or do you sort of write in fragments and then kind of piece them together? Or, you know, what was your process of composition like?
2: I feel like my editor will hate to hear this if he does listen to this podcast, but Don't I write- listen.
4: Turn it off, uh, th- turn it this off. This is
2: true of all, everything that I've written. I, except for like screenplays, I write top down. I just start at the beginning and then I write through until I hit the end of it and then I go back and we'll edit. But that's right. my very, very bad uh, method of
4: writing. Wait, 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 why is that bad? Why is that bad?
2: I feel like it just flies in the face of all the advice that you tend to get <laughs> about writing where you're like, you should have like your structure, you mm. should have your outline, you should have like a frame already for what you want to do. But I don't know, I, I'm i write kind of more instinctually that way i guess
4: right so like how do you then figure out you know like integrating the research within it like so for example i i usually write top down unless it's a research heavy thing if it's a research Mm -hmm. heavy thing that i'm outlining because i want to keep track of Mm -hmm. you know where am i getting this information because i'm gonna have to actually cite it later or give it to a fact checker or whatever and so it just saves Time at the end if I outline at the beginning. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. so if like you're going top down, how are you thinking about Is it more you're just like, you know, you finish a paragraph and you're like, oh, I should talk about this thing that I read about over here. And then you go get it and then put it in there. or or...
2: Um, Sort of like I think this is way too flowery of a way to describe what I do. But it's sort of like listening to a song or telling a story where like I have a sense when I'm working on each subsection of where that subsection is going to go or what I want to Mm -hmm. go in it. And so like as I write, I can sort of say like. Oh, and then like this sequence is in reference to this event. And then I can go off and do a few tabs of research or whatever. I do as much research as I need to to fill that section out properly and sort of drop in the information that I need and then sort of river the rest of it, if that makes (laughs) sense. It's like rocks in a river and the water's like flowing down through it. Um, Got it. So you're really
4: doing research as you go. You're not yeah. doing like an extended amount of research and then writing. You're writing, getting to a point where you need That's to research something. That's how I'll start something. at least. Yeah.
2: But if I think something is lacking in some way or if I know that there's a hole in it, then obviously I'm going to go back and do more, like, do more.
4: Were there things you felt as a writer you had to learn how to do while writing this book or that you learned, you know, through the process of writing this book?
2: Well, this is the longest form project that I've ever worked on, as I I sort of alluded to earlier. Yeah. And I think the big thing was there were definitely a couple chapters where I hadn't hit the word count that I wanted. And I think the skill there is sort of figuring out, like... Is going back over what you've done and finding out what you've missed in Mm -hmm. a more significant way than if you're writing a review or something that is shorter in form. Because it's a bigger hole to fill and it's also more significant because it's not like you can go in there and just fluff it, you know, like it has to have meaning. It has to contribute to the chapter in some meaningful way. And in those cases, it usually was a matter of kind of doing more research, rereading the chapter or rewatching the movie and sort of seeing like, what did I miss the first time? What did I forget to write down? Um, What else can go in here that will actually be meaningful and contribute to what I'm trying to say?
4: Right. I think about that uh, Simpsons episode where Homer becomes a restaurant critic and his first review (laughs) that he doesn't he can't meet the word count. So the, the his first review just ends with like Flanders sucks over and over and over yeah. again. You don't want to be doing that, right? You don't want no, to be doing no, the like no. Flanders sucks. You actually want to like you want it to be longer because you actually legitimately have more worthwhile to say. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. How many times did you watch the movies while uh, making the book?
2: Um, probably at least a couple times each. Once, like, yeah, because I would Were... watch once just to refresh my memory of it, and then right. maybe another time to like take notes while I was doing it.
4: So when were you writing this, right? Because when you started it, you had a job. So how were you yeah. fitting it around your job? And, and once you left that job at Slate.com, a website our listeners may have heard of, um, <laughs> did that change what your writing schedule was like?
2: yeah, it was honestly really, really hard to work on this book uh, with a day job. The first real chunk of writing that I got done was basically over my Christmas break. Like instead of having a Christmas vacation, I just worked on the book. And that was actually a part of the reason why I left Slate, where I asked for um book leave. and for various reasons, it was not granted to me. And I was like, I know I need to finish this book. Like right. I have to get it done. And it's this is at that point, I was like, this is more important to me. Then, also you
4: have contractual deadlines.
2: That's true. Yeah. <laughs> like I was lucky that I got an extension at one point, but I was like, I want to finish this book. This is more important to me in my life, I think, right now. Um, so that's what I'm gonna focus on, which is not an easy decision to make because staff jobs are not easy to get.
4: <laughs> no, I mean it's taking a risk on yourself and your own work is is that's a hard jump to make. Yeah. I mean I remember like when I left working at the think tank to become a full time, I was working at a mm-hmm. think tank and then became a full time freelancer.
1: Yeah.
4: Um, I, I was in a similar situation where like I had a major piece. This was uh, real enemies, the show I did at BAM and I just wasn't going to finish it while I had that job. And so I had to leave that job, even though the, <laughs> my share of the commission for real enemies was like $8,000 or something for mm-hmm. 18 months of work. You know, it still, that was the thing that was more important to me. And it was terrifying you know, and I loved my bosses. I loved that job. Like it had nothing. I wasn't scared of them. I just like the idea that it's like, I'm really going to do this. That's a hard jump to make. How did you. You were
2: giving up a lot when you do it. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. How did you steal yourself up to do that? Was it just about recognizing what your priorities were? or
2: I mean, we talk about time versus money, like so much on this show, but that really was a huge part of it where like I had enough savings that I was like, I could not make money for a while and I would be okay, technically. I also knew, like, I had enough kind of pre-existing relationships with other editors that if I really needed to, I could pick up some freelance work. Mm -hmm. And I was also very, very lucky um, in that my partner was like, if you need financial support, I will give it to you. Like So I had safety nets um, that I could use if I needed to in order to support myself during that time.
4: So... The book is a coffee table book. There's a heavy design element Mm -hmm. to it. How did that shape the writing and the process of, of making the book?
2: I was really, really lucky in that the design team at Little White Lies is really superb. They're really, really fantastic. And I basically didn't have to think about it at all while I was writing. Mm. The, all the stuff that's in the book is sort takes its cues from my writing, if you will. For instance, like if I'm talking about a certain scene and that text goes on X page, the pictures that are going to be accompanying that are going to be from that scene as well.
4: Were you involved in the design process? I mean, obviously, you're not necessarily mm-hmm. picking the exact photos or whatever, <laughs> but like, are they consulting with you? Or are you batting ideas back and forth? Do they just come to you with it or like, you have to sign off on this or, you know, what, what was that part of the process like?
2: It's sort of half and half where all the stuff that's inside the book, I would say that... They showed it to me and I was like, that looks great. (laughs) The only difference is like there are some, there's like a chapter ending page basically that like has the credits for the film and a special illustration. Um, And we had to work with the translator to get the text on it right, basically, because it's in Korean and then there is like an English translation on the bottom, but they weren't totally syncing up or weren't quite grammatically correct. But that's not really a a layout thing, I guess. Uh, The one thing we went back and forth the most on, I would say, is the cover because that's like the first impression that your book makes. Like you want it to really, you want to like it. Um, and so they sent me a bunch of initial design ideas. And I, that was the biggest one where I'd weigh in and be like, I don't like this. I like this from this design, but can we do it like that? Um, X, Y, Z, which was a lot of fun. I, yeah. I like, I, I love giving my opinion. <laughs> <on> this. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and there's something fun about, like, figuring out the cover for your book, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, shit, this is, like, real. Someone has put it's some wild, thought yeah. into this. It's a way of thinking about the, the book that you've made in a new way, because now you're thinking about how do I be true to the thing I made and also wrote people into reading it, you know? hmm
2: mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I, I mean th- the the subtitle of dissident cinema was one we went back and forth a lot on too for this for similar reasons.
4: Oh, what were? Can you tell us what some of the other ones were?
2: Oh, one of the other ones we thought of was cinema virtuoso, which was one I because I was initially kind of resistant to dissident cinema because I I wanted I didn't want it to only seem political if you know what right. I mean. Where I was like, yeah, that he there are a lot of political themes in his work, but he's not defined by that. I think, and I also didn't want. Just because every other monograph in the series is about a white director and kind of focuses more on like, ooh, like they're amazing in the subtitle. I was like, I don't want the first one that is about a filmmaker of color to like micro focus in that way. Like Mm -hmm. I I wanted it to be broader where it's like he is on the same level as these other filmmakers or else you wouldn't be writing a book about him. Why is he the only one that you talk about in this way? But I like it now, to be clear. Mm.
4: Also, you know, as you were saying earlier, the way he handles politics in his work yeah. is not polemical. It's not like he's not like stridently making a political argument. It's embedded mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. the drama. It's embedded in the camera work. It's it's embedded the way it is with all those other filmmakers.
2: Mm-hmm. And I I think I ended up liking it more when I thought about it more broadly where it's like dissident, not just in terms of political right. themes, but also like he is a weird filmmaker. Like he does stuff that you would not expect or think is or would find a weird from any other director.
4: Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Um, as we talked about a little bit earlier, you went through a lot of life changes while writing this book, You <laughs> left slate, you moved across the country, you're working yeah. in doing scripted TV, you know, uh, with your partner. What was it like to try to bring a book into the world in the midst of all that? Was it difficult to kind of sequester out the time and mental space or,
2: Yeah, I mean, I felt like it was easier to do when not in a day job anymore. Well, I call it a day job, but like, you get what I mean. Like, when not having to devote so much of my time to something else. Um, But at the same time, it was tough because like, again, we moved out to LA to pursue screenwriting more. And yet I still had to devote a lot of my time to this book rather than that. And trying to work around like feelings of guilt where I was like, is my partner mad at me for like working on my book? It's like a really horrible thing to have to deal with. (laughs) But it's something that I did deal with while writing this book.
4: I mean, yeah, I felt guilty all the time working on my on, yeah. on my book during the pandemic and everything like that. But then I was like, it is actually my job, <laughs> you know. It's like at some yeah. point, it's like it's yeah, also
2: it's... like this is important to me. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah,
4: totally, totally. Um, has investing this much time, energy, smarts, what, you know, whatever, into the work of one filmmaker, you know, going this deep, uh-huh. has that? change the way you think about film writ large? Like, do you find that you're watching movies in a different way or that you're asking different questions now or, you know, like, how is the you on the other end of this book different from the you who went into it?
2: I think any research process like this or any process that is as demanding as writing a book about one topic the main thing that you will get out of it on the other end is obviously, number one, a deeper appreciation for the stuff that you were writing about and a deeper understanding of it. But the second thing is, I think, just a broadened sense of curiosity. Because one of the really wonderful things about Bong Jun ho is he's very not shy about talking about the movies and other directors that he finds admirable or inspiring in some way. And that's actually one of the subsections of my book. Like between each chapter, there are a couple pages devoted to the movies that he inspired him in some cases that directly inspired the movie that it's following or et cetera, et cetera. And it makes you want to go seek out more other stuff that you might not be familiar with before. It broadens your horizons.
4: How do you cultivate curiosity? Cause it seems like so much of your process is about curiosity. You know, if you're listening to this show and you're like, God, I'm not a curious enough person. (laughs) uh, What can you do to be more curious?
2: I think it can be as simple as, like, reading more reviews. Like, does a, like if you like a certain writer, if you read what they review, like, does that make you want to go see that movie? Then go see that movie. Like, is there something in there that interests you? Then go try finding it out. And on, on a more, I guess, immediate level, just ask your friends what they're up to, what they're doing. Tag along with them if they're going to go see, like, a play or a ballet or something. If they say a TV show is really good, like, why not check it out? If they say it's really bad, then why not check it out? <laughs>
4: You can learn Um, a lot from bad work.
2: It's true. I mean, it can come from anywhere. I think as long as you have an open mind towards it or you're like, I will never listen to country music or something like that. Like you're closing yourself off to avenues if you're thinking that way. But as long as you're not, I think you'll have a pretty healthy stream of things to investigate in your life.
4: Karen Hahn, thank you so much for joining us here on Working and Talking About Your Process.
2: This was so fun. And also, listeners in New York, uh, I will be in New York the week of December 5th to do a bunch of events about my book. So if you are at all interested, please drop in.
4: Is there a clearinghouse where one can get all that those events information? Are they on your website or, or something like that?
2: Uh, I would say if you're on Twitter, then check my Twitter because keep, I'll keep i keep posting about them. As of this recording, the two events that have been announced are on December 6th I will be at the Nighthawk uh, introducing a screening of Barking Dogs Never Bite which is Feng Jun-ho's debut feature and then on December 7th I will be at the Alamo Draft House uh, for a screening of The Host and a QA and a moderated by David Ehrlich um, books will be on sale at the Alamo event and um, I also am supposed to have events on December 5th and December 8th. They just have not been announced yet, so I don't want to uh, blow their cover. But there is stuff going on December 5th through 8th. It's a bong extravaganza in New York.
4: Awesome. Well, Karen, thank you so much for joining us here on Working.
0: Thank you again. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
3: I always feel inspired by the commitment that Karen has to building a creative career. Mm. And I was really struck by how quickly she decided that the museum world, which in a way was what she would trained for, just wasn't for her. I'm about a generation older than Karen and you're right in the middle between us. But I just don't think I had the clarity at that point in my life to say, you know what, I don't think this is it when the sunk costs were relatively low. And I wonder, did you have Karen's clarity of vision early in your work life?
4: Are, are you worried about this because now the sunk costs are very high and you actually want to go <laughs> yes. have a museum career? Or Yeah,
3: uh... yeah, yeah, exactly.
4: Well, okay. So I went through this a bunch of times, right? Like when I was a little kid... I thought I was going to be an actor. In fact, I Mm. wanted to be an actor so early that I have no memory of like the epiphanic moment where I was like, oh, "Oh, I'm going to be an actor. It was just always the case. And then in college, I switched to focusing on directing. And then in my late twenties, I I switched to focusing on writing. So, you know, I've had these moments where like, oh, it's time to start over. It's time to do a new thing. And and writing has stuck. I mean, This is the way I see it. A a friend of mine who's a, a poet and essayist said this thing that I find really helpful that I think I've probably said on here before about the difference between squids and eels Mm. that, uh, you know, at every point of its life, a squid is a squid, right? Like a baby squid just looks like a squid and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger as a squid. And then eventually it dies. And then there's eels, which actually look very different at different points in their life cycle and are very strange organisms that go through a lot of changes. And some people are squids. They're just always going to do that thing. And some people are eels. They, they change a lot. And I turned out to be an eel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we should also talk about the third category of crabs, which is, you know, there's like multiple (laughs) different species that have evolved into crabs independently. It's like the the evolutionary endpoint. So we have to figure out a way to expand this metaphor of crabs. Like everyone eventually becomes an online poster or something.
3: (laughs) And then, as uh, Karen said, realizing that she wasn't going to get the time and resources necessary to do the longer in-depth writing that she really wanted to do and she felt drawn to, she took a huge risk and walked away from a staff writing job in order to focus on her book and the other kind of writing that she wants to do. And, you know, if someone in that position or facing that dilemma wrote to working and asked for advice, I don't know that I would recommend doing that. But I'm also really glad and, and also proud of her for making that move. As you mentioned, your students often ask about these kinds of career inflection points. And I wonder what you tell them. What kinds of things should people take into consideration when they're thinking about a big step like the one Karen took?
4: Well, Karen already had paying creative work lined Mm -hmm. up when she took that leap. And that's actually the same situation I was in when I quit the anti-discrimination think tank that I was working at to focus on finishing real enemies and all sorts of stuff like that. You know, like, yes, it's a risk. And in both cases, we were taking a risk on ourselves and on our work. And I don't want to minimize that because it was very scary. And I talked to my therapist for like two months before (laughs) doing it and et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. But, you, we were already getting a sign from the world that an actual career in the creative arts was possible. Yeah. And actually, in both of our cases, we had gotten to the point where doing the day job and doing the creative work, it, it was really time to make a choice one way yeah. or the other. There were deadlines yeah. to be met, things like that. So I actually think that one way to think about this if you want to be strategic as opposed to blundering into it like <laughs> I did is, you know, how do I get myself into a situation where I absolutely have to quit my job in order to do my paying creative work.
3: Wow, yes. Well, obviously, Twitter is, uh, how to put it, going through something right now. But hearing that being Twitter mutuals with folks from Little White Lies was key to Karen doing this book, it just reminded me of the tragedic aspects of this Twitter shitshow, let's call it. For all its hellsight qualities, Twitter.com as also being an amazing connector, especially in terms of connecting people with shared interests. Are you also kind of going through a process with this?
4: Oh, I totally am. June, you and I met and became friends because of Twitter. It's true. Yeah. I wrote, is Hamlet fat because of Twitter? <laughs> you know, um, I think I wound up on that Game of Thrones podcast with you because of Twitter. It, it yeah. is really responsible for some of the most important friendships and working relationships and jobs and writing assignments in my life. Uh the next piece I have going up for the New Yorker came about because of Twitter, you know? Wow. Like I'm still getting work from it. So I, I I'm really upset about what's happening there, right? Because yeah. like you know, particularly with all the crazy anti-Semitic stuff that's been happening yeah. over the past couple weeks yeah. to then have Elon Musk opening the floodgates to more Nazis and start to ban even normie Twitter accounts like Media Matters for America staff have found them themselves banned recently and stuff yeah. like that. It's, it's very, very upsetting. And, and it feels inevitable that I'm going to quit it at some yeah. point yeah. soon if it doesn't go out of business. Yeah. But it's an agonizing decision of trying to figure out when to jump. Off yeah. That that ship, um, yeah. in part because I'm still having a good time there. Like I've created yeah. a good community of people. It's, yes. You know, it's not like I'm following neo Nazis. So right. you know, but right. I have to keep reminding myself. Like before Twitter, there was Facebook, and before Facebook, there were blogs, mm. and before blogs, there were BBSs, and I was <laughs> part of all of those things and making connections and creating work with people I met on all of those things. And yeah. um, yes, there's certain things about Twitter that make it easy to foster conversations with people, but it's also true that something else will come about. And that we'll figure out a way to take advantage of that. I really believe that. I just don't know what it is yet. So yeah, we'll right now see. I'm curled up in a panic ball, but it'll, it'll, <laughs> it'll work itself out. I really do believe that.
3: Yeah, I, I think so too. Um, Isaac, you asked a lovely question of Karen in which I think you described the discovery process of exploring a topic as taking something you're interested in, finding the question in there that most grabs you and trying to answer it. Mm. It's such a great formulation, and I'd love to hear you talk about how you've used that strategy
4: in your own writing. Well, first of all, thank you very much for that compliment. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I think that part of what I'm talking about is just formalizing a thing that artists and writers do anyway, yeah. you yeah. know, um, and I think actually everyone does this. So in the in much the same way that everyone acts all the time. And you just have to learn how to do that intentionally. You know, I think most of us have that impulse of like you're watching a movie and you're interested in a performer you've never seen before. You're like, oh, who directed this again? And Mm -hmm. then you sort of go to Wikipedia and you're reading about the director and then you're not paying attention to the movie anymore. Like we've all had that experience, right? All I'm talking about is doing that and then taking it many, 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 many steps further, right? Mm -hmm. It's that natural impulse just holding on to that impulse and those questions and following them where they're going to take you. Mm. Right. So, I, I mean, I'll give you an example that actually, like if I was to make up a piece right now off the top <laughs> of my head, I'm okay. Last yes. night I watched the hunt for red October with my wife. Cause she had never seen it before. And you know, it's an incredibly well directed movie. And about halfway through, I was like, I-, I forgot who directed this movie. And I looked it up and it was John McTiernan who also directed Die Hard. Okay. So he directed both Die Hard and Hunt for Red October. So that's really fascinating, right? Then you start digging deeper into that. It's like, so what made him such a great action director? Because he made a bunch of other action movies. And why hasn't he worked? almost at all this century. And well, the reason why he hasn't worked almost at all this century is that he went to jail for the, because he was part of the um, Pelicanos wiretapping case, this Hollywood PI and fixer that directors and producers were hiring to wiretap their enemies. And he went to jail for it and has not been able to recover his career since. So it's like, you can see any number of ideas for a piece in that, whether it's about his films or his criminal history or trying to interview him or whatever it is. And all of those questions came about with like five minutes of spending time online. So you can really do this with anything. If you just have a question, just hold on to the question and don't let go till you've discovered enough stuff that you can create something out of it. Now, you don't want to do that with everything because life is short and you only have so many pieces (laughs) you're going to be able to write or paint or compose in a day. But I just think following that kind of curiosity is how to do it
3: i'm so ashamed i have to admit though that about 80 percent conservatively of the questions that i ask myself when i'm watching things are how old is it's so i can expect, like is she older than me mm. do i look better than him you know that kind of thing it's it's just how old is that's that's my <laughs> big that's my go-to question
4: right but okay so then there's an interesting piece that you could write about yeah. your own relationship yes. to aging
3: Yes. You, right? And I tell you, you know one thing I've noticed when you get to a certain age, you see that the actors who play parents on Law and Order, they're st- much too old to have the kids that who are cast as their kids. And you and like it why? And and I've asked myself that as I'm asking how old is like, well, then he wouldn't have, you know, or she wouldn't have a child that young. Anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. Isaac, you asked Karen what she had to learn in the process of writing Bong Joon-ho dissident cinema. Now, I need to know what you had to learn when writing your amazing book, The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, which came out in February of this year. And like Karen's book, would make an amazing holiday gift.
4: (laughs) Thank you very much. And uh, your check is in the mail. Nice. No, I mean, that list is endless. I think when you create a major work, whether it's a, I don't know, a symphony or a book or, you know, (laughs) whatever it is. Part of the process of doing that is becoming the artist capable of creating that work. And and most people I know who are doing interesting work are not the same artist at the end that they were in the beginning. And I'm going to guess that you're experiencing that right now as you try to figure this out, whether it's technical stuff about how to research specific archives or, you know. How to establish a scene Mm. using only confirmable factual information, whereas a novelist can, of course, describe outfits and stuff like that. You know, there's lots and lots and lots of different challenges. Um, One for me that I spoke about when you interviewed me had to do with managing narrative tension and how to keep the reader interested while... Delivering all this theoretical mumbo jumbo about acting and religion and everything like that. How do you keep them interested enough in the story that they'll put up with that? You know, that was a that was a real thing that I had to learn or how to zoom into a moment and then out and be like, anyway, three years later, you know, like, how do you (laughs) do that? Right. Um, How do you balance sources against each other? So that it feels like when you're discussing an event, you're being fair, mm-hmm. while also maybe discussing some factual disputes and things like that. It's, it's yeah. just a very, very long list. And you should write yours down for when I interview you, <laughs> when your book comes out. Excellent.
3: Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode and just a reminder that by joining slate plus you'll get ad-free podcasts extra segments on shows like slow burn and big mood little mood and you'll never hit a paywall on the slate site to learn more go to slate.com slash working plus
4: thank you to karen han and to the best producer of dissident podcast this side of soul Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with Taffy Brodesser-Ackner, who will be talking about the work she did adapting her novel Fleischman is in Trouble into an FX Hulu TV series. I have to say this is our first ever repeat guest because Taffy was on the podcast talking about writing Fleischman is in Trouble uh, in its early days. So you're really going to want to check that out and write us to tell us whose interview you liked better. Anyway, (laughs) until then, get back to work.